Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. They were the heroes from the future. Teenagers protecting the universe from those that would sow the seeds of chaos. Each had unique powers and abilities. And though they often had their differences, they came together to save the day as the Legion of Superheroes. Now you can be a part of their adventures and learn the history of the future in the Legion Clubhouse. Hi, I'm Steven Schleicher. And I'm Matthew Peterson. And you're listening to The Legion Clubhouse, a show about the Legion of Superheroes from DC Comics. Now, before we get into our very first episode, I thought some of you might be interested in how this episode came about. One of our fine listeners, one of our big fans, uh, knows that Matthew and I are big fans of the Legion of Superheroes for a long time. And we've always talked about our desire to have a Legion podcast where we could geek out about the Legion with other creators and other fans of the show. The problem is we've always been hindered by the lack of funds. So this spoilerite stepped forward and contributed enough funds for us to produce 10 episodes of the Legion Clubhouse. And we're super grateful. We're super thankful. And we're super excited about this opportunity to share our love with the Legion of Superheroes with you. Now, it's very important to note that we're not just recapping what's happened in the Legion issue by issue, panel by panel. We're also looking at the bigger implications of each issue of the stories and the culture from which they sprang. And there are actually some minor cameo appearances, certain single panel appearances or joke appearances of the Legion that we may not even address simply because they're much more minor than what we're looking at. This is more of a a larger overview of the Legion, both as a comic book and also as, I think, the, the social implications of what the Legion does become. Right now, the Legion Clubhouse is scheduled to release every other week until we've completed our 10-episode run. At that point, we're hoping that we have even more funding so that we can continue this episode. My hope is that you'll enjoy this show as much as we enjoy making it for you, and you will head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash major spoilers, and you'll sign up before we reach our 10th uh, before we reach our tenth and final episode. We're looking to add 150 new patrons in order to make this an ongoing show. So without further ado, let's go check out the Legion Clubhouse. Adventure Comics, number 247, The Legion of Superheroes. Published April 1958, written by Otto Binder, with art by Al Plastino. Superboy is shocked when a trio of strangers seem to know all his secrets. Uh, Matthew, I have a question. Yes, sir. Why are teenagers from the future so darn mean? <laughs> teenagers from any era are mean, but I think it's also important to note that in the late 1950s and the early 1960s when these stories were being written, the expectation was that they were aimed at children, um, children from maybe the five to ten-year-old range. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I think that you see this a lot where stories aimed at those kids are stories about children or teenagers slightly older. So those kids can be like, yeah, I'm going to be an awesome 16 year old. And frankly, even the adult Superman stories of the era are filled with some serious like fraternity hazing level stories. So this really kind of fits into Silver Age Superman where something weird is happening and it turns out that someone is kind of tugging on Superman's metaphorical cape, no matter what Jim Croce told them not to do. <laughs> what did you what did you think of the tour of the future where, uh, you know, the lightning lad and cosmic boy and, and, uh, Santa girl are all like, Hey, Superman, <laughs> come with us to the future and join our club. We'll show you around, including, uh, uh, the, the local, uh, uh, ice cream shop. Nine delicious flavors from nine different planets. The ice cream shop, uh, their school and the history class, again, very much aimed at the kids, very much aimed at youth around the world in 80 minutes. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. I mean, I think it's interesting to see what 1958 expected the 30th century to be like. And basically, it's Flash Gordon with uh, flared shoulders and capes. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. I, I think one of the things that fascinates me is we are getting a Hercules tale here. You know, Hercules was given, what, 12 tasks. Mm-hmm. Superman is given three tasks, but he actually completes six tasks in his audition for the Legion of Superheroes. <laughs> one of the things that fascinates me about getting into the Legion of Superheroes is you can really only have one power. Right. Each Legionnaire must have a unique superpower. And at this point, basically, that means a single ability. So mm-hmm. magnetism lightning telepathy and well there are other tantalizing glimpses of other legionnaires in the back of their heads those are the only three that we get for probably the first couple three years of the legion's history Mm -hmm. you get your magnetism your lightning or your telepathy and you got to write your name on your shirt like a mouseketeer so that you don't forget it what's what's fascinating though is that while they task superman with only trying to use one of his powers at a time they're actually, you know, throwing these um, um, these problems in his way where instead of rescuing the ship, uh, you know, a giant satellite is crashing into the planet or instead of putting out the fire, there are all these other things that the Legion are throwing in his way to kind of trick him and to haze him. And mm-hmm. I still find that very odd and very fascinating, especially when it's coming from Otto Bender, who mm-hmm. is all about inclusion, in a way, it kind of makes sense, though, because they, they're they kind of addressing Superman, the legend, as a real person. And mm-hmm. you, you come at it as Superman is this character that they've grown up knowing larger-than-life adventures for decades and decades. And he has basically inspired their entire club. But that doesn't mean that they're not willing to, uh, you know, tweak his nose when he's a 14-year-old boy a little bit and kind of tease him and... It feels a little bit retrograde, but again, it is it is 1958 at this point in time. So I I can accept it, and I feel like in a lot of ways it sets the tone for even later Legion stories, even the ones that you know have a more mature, a more modern feel. They still have that we're kids doing kid things and kind of teasing each other and poking at each other and kind of being jerks. You know, I I have a theory. Uh, my theory is that the teenagers 
the story, yes, the Legion may be mean. Teenagers may be mean to each other and maybe even future teens are even worse than the normal 1950s teenagers. Mm -hmm. But what I think Bender is trying to do in this story is he's trying to say, yeah, you're probably going to have people be mean to you all your life and people who may be your friends uh, may do things to uh, make you feel down or make you feel bad about what your skills are. But to be a real Superman or a real Superboy in this case, in mm. order to be a real hero, you need to turn it around on them to the point mm-hmm. where they don't even realize that they are being made the target of the very things that they were making fun of you for. It's kind of a yeah. very complex way of thinking because by the time that this issue ends, so, or the story ends, because this is a two issues or two stories in, in, this, uh, mm-hmm. in this comic. Uh, suddenly three other things happen and Superboy goes out and he solves these problems by himself in mm-hmm. very unique ways. And by the time he comes back, he's like, yeah, remember how you told me that I could only use one power at a time? Well, I used all of your powers to solve right. this. I used magnetism. I used lightning and I used uh, mind reading, I guess. Uh, I bet you're wondering why I didn't just use my super strength. Yeah. And he basically turns it back around on each of them until they're like, oh, my gosh, you're so brilliant. Bravo, Superman. Mm-hmm. And Superboy is basically dropping the mic and walking off and giving yeah. him a, a superhero number one medal. Yeah, it well, and Cosmic Boy says on panel that part of it was they knew his powers, they knew his abilities, they knew just the scope of what a Superman can do. But this also proves that he's a super good sport. He's a human being who, even though they teased him and needled him, still got over his his feeling of alienation, got over his personal hurt and went out and did the heroic thing and was, you know, respectful of their group even though they weren't respectful of him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's another important lesson to take out of this too is that Superman, Superboy in this case, was the bigger boy when it seemed like they were being mean or rude or dismissive, he still went out and did his Superboy thing and he did it in such a way that he turned it back around on them. He steered into that skid, metaphorically speaking, <laughs> of them teasing him, teased them right back and proved that he's not just, you know, a super boy. He's also a nice kid from Smallville who can, you know, take it as well as he can dish it out, I think. The thing about 247 that's really interesting to me is how much of the actual tone of the next 50 years of the Legion is right here. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Uh, you, one of the things that's really fascinating, and, and it may be a, a mistake, and I think uh, there are a couple of different versions of this comic that you can find. There are some mm-hmm. recolored ones that have come out in uh, some very mm-hmm. hardback uh, volumes. There are some uh, big $19, uh, 600-page black and white printed on uh, phone book paper uh, volumes that you can go out and read. But mm-hmm. One of the things that's interesting is in the final panel of uh, Superboy um, being asked to join is we see a green skinned kid with blonde hair. At the time, Brainiac had not been added to the lineup, but we see in this in this very diverse group of people standing around that, yeah, we could have an alien in here. Yeah. And in the foreground, you can kind of see someone who may be Matter Eater Lad. I I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. The the initial the, the timeline of the Legion is a little convoluted because it should be noted that 
by their time frame, Supergirl actually joins before Superboy. Mm, mm-hmm. But I believe that the green skinned Brainiac is actually something that wasn't in the initial issue. It was added later in the reprints. Yeah. And that's, I may be... and that's one of the things that unfortunately, when we're looking at history, uh, f- first runs of this, the original print mm-hmm. of this kind of expensive for us to get our hands on. So we're relying on Very the so. uh, collected editions, the black and white editions to get mm-hmm. us through these adventures. But I always find that kind of, of interesting. And in fact, beyond just this, don't let bullies get you down kind of attitude that Otto Bender brought, brought into creating the Legion of Superheroes. He mm-hmm. actually is is bringing a lot of feminism into these uh, yes. characters as well, because instead of having a leadership made up of all males, one of the main, most important characters on the leadership team is Saturn Girl. Yep, and Saturn Girl is treated as an equal mm-hmm. to you know to Lightning Lad, well Lightning Boy in this issue, and Cosmic Boy. And I think that that's very subtle, and it's not really trumpeted, mm-hmm. which I think is really impressive for the day. Nineteen again, nineteen fifty eight. Yeah. The, the My Little Margie era. And you never, ever see in the Silver Age Saturn Girl treated as anything other than an equal. You never see a Saturn Girl get spanked panel, for instance. Right. And I think that's one of the the cool things about Otto Bender is he is subtly slipping in his agenda without anyone really realizing it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's done in a way that. It's all very positive. It's all very forward looking and it's all very futuristic in all the right ways. And even the things that are still problematic about that future are things where you look at and go, they're trying. They put in a lot of effort for 1958. Otto Bender's name was dropped several times in the first issue discussion, and many of you may not know who Otto Bender is. Fortunately, Bill Shelley is an author who's been immersed in the world of science fiction and comics since the mid-1960s. He made his first contributions to pop culture through his comics fanzine Sense of Wonder, and since then, he has been chronicling the history of comics fandom and some of the greatest comic book creators in books and novels and articles uh, that are out there for everyone. One of his most recent works is Otto Bender, the life and work of a comic book and science fiction visionary. I had a chance to sit down with Shelley to talk about Bender's life. How did you discover Otto Bender? I discovered Otto Bender when I picked up a comic book on a newsstand as an eight-year-old. And it was the first Superman annual number one, which was published in 1960. And it turns out he wrote six of the nine stories in that annual which is the comic book that made me into a comic book fan. So it started me on my lifelong habit of reading and loving comics. Bender, though, didn't start in comic books, though. That's that's the thing that I think is is most amazing, is that he really got a start in the pulps with his brother. Yeah, Otto Bender started in the pulps with his brother Earl uh, as a team, writing team, E&O Bender. And they started in 1932 and gradually became more um, popular, made more sales. But finally, when Otto moved to New York uh, in the late 30s, they really couldn't keep up the partnership the same way. And his brother didn't really want to either. So Otto took it over. And so most of these E&O 
uh, bender stories that are seen uh, in science fiction pulps and Adam Link and so on are really just written by Otto. Well, I, f- I find that really interesting because even after they had formally dissolved their writing partnership, uh, Otto was still a pretty cool guy to say, hey, as long as I'm writing as Eno Bender, Bender, I'm going to send you some money uh, each time that we uh, that something is published. Otto tried to take care of his brother Earl um, by sending him money um, even after their partnership was broken up, yes. And also um, by helping him find markets when um, his brother later decided to try writing solo. Hmm. Interesting. I, I'm curious, why did Bender travel to New York? He was in, was he in Ohio? No, he was in Chicago. Oh, Chicago, he okay. Was, he, Otto Bender was a key player in Chicago science fiction fandom in the 30s. Um, It was a hotbed of science fiction fans, probably the most um, uh, impressive group of of such fans in the country at the time. But uh, he was working with um, a man named um, Otis Albert Klein. And Klein, K-L-I-N-E, uh, was a literary agent who was a writer, but was also a literary agent, and he needed a representative in New York. And Clyde didn't want to move to New York, so he asked Otto, would you go there and be my representative? And, of course, this was a golden opportunity for Otto because as a, as Klein's representative, he could also sell his own stories and learn all the ins and outs and make all the contacts, so it helped him tremendously as a writer to do that. I, I think that that's, that's really fascinating because... And, and I was reading your, in your, um, the biography that you wrote of him, it's so fascinating because by taking this leap and saying, yes, I will be your representative in New York, he was able to not only learn the business to, uh, better his own career, but he had the ability to connect with what today we consider some of the biggest names in comic books and, and, uh, and, and pulp novels of the time. Well, yes, when Otto went to New York, he um, he did make a lot of connections. And when comic books came around in the early 40s, um, his friends became leaders uh, and editors at DC Comics. Um, one of his closest friends was Mort Weisinger, who... Um, who, who came to Otto one time and said, hey, Otto, um, I, I have this opportunity to work at D.C. How do you write for comic books? <laughs> and so Otto, who had been in comics for a couple of years, sort of told um, Mort how to approach it, and, and that essentially helped Mort get his job as a D.C. editor. And at the same time, Julia Schwartz also uh, needed work, and eventually, I think in 1944, became an editor at D.C. as well. So these were two of Otto's best friends. And they had gone on like road trips together, right? Right. They'd got, they drove across the country at least twice together, the three of them in the car, to visit Ray Bradbury in California <laughs> and uh, to meet Forey Ackerman in California, who was also a prominent science fiction fan. And so they were, uh, they used to play bridge, uh, all have all night bridge games together. Uh, so they were very close. Mort Weisinger, Julia Schwartz, Ray Bradbury, H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, I mean, it's just like, a who's who of everyone that's writing uh, back in the in the 1930s and 40s. It, to me, it boggles my mind. But can you clarify or maybe tell us what is this uh, story that I hear that he may have had some influence in the creation of Superman? Well, supposedly, Otto set, talk, uh, talked about uh, to Richard Lupoff and, and others 
that he had met Jerry Siegel, a very young Jerry Siegel, at a meeting in Chicago of science fiction fans. Uh, Siegel had been publishing a fanzine, a science fiction fanzine, and um, they were talking, and, and Otto was came uh, later said he came up with an idea of an alien from another planet coming to Earth and having powers as a result and becoming uh, a hero on Earth due to uh, the things that he could do based on his uh, uh, birth on another planet. So if this were true, it became a pretty central part of the Superman mythos, but it's, it, Otto never really talked about it later and talked about it in public. So you know, it's hard to know for sure mm-hmm. if th- that element did come, but it's an intriguing story, isn't it? I, th- I think it's fascinating, not only because you can start, you know, if you had one of those conspiracy theory minds, you could put Otto Bender in the middle and start drawing these strings out to all of these people in in uh, uh, the pulp novels and, and comic books, and he would be like at the center of it all. It just seems kind of crazy from that point. Well, yeah, I mean, he was a, a incredibly a central figure, very influential, knew everybody, and um, his influences went far beyond his actual writing because of all the people he knew, the people he helped, and the um, the influence his writing itself had on others. So, yes, he was definitely uh, a central character. I don't know about conspiracy theories, but you, <laughs> if you wanted to go there, you could do it. I'm thinking if you're someone like The Question, you'd have this big wall <laughs> all marked up with with uh, lines and, and note cards and everything. It'd be pretty crazy. <laughs> well, he certainly knew them all. He went to a party at, uh, uh, at an apartment in New York where Lovecraft uh, held court for a couple of hours and said mm-hmm. he was one of the most fascinating speakers he ever heard. Wow. I just it's it's it just boggles my mind when I think about that, because I have, you know, this this uh, uh, affection for the Cthulhu mythos and the Legion of Superheroes and Superman and everything that uh, Bender touched, including uh, what we'll get to in a moment, uh, uh, Captain Marvel. So it just is like, wow, this is stuff that maybe people have never heard of before. Why do you why do you think that when it comes to talking about comic book greats? For a lot of people, people would recognize Julia Schwartz and, and Mort Weisinger, but the name Otto Binder may not be as well known. I don't think um, Otto's name is as well known as Julia Schwartz or Mort Weisinger because he uh, worked in anonymity, first of all, in the 40s. All of his work uh, for Fawcett on the Captain Marvel and the Marvel family was done without any credit at all. Um, and his uh, work for DC in the 50s was done the same way. Uh, so uh, he got out of comics in 1960 to start Space World magazine, and so and when comic fandom came along, Otto really wasn't around at the at the uh, in terms of uh, uh, writing in comics. So fans didn't really weren't really reading stories by him from 1960 to 64. I think that had an effect. Mm-hmm. But I find he was, it, out of, he, he was out of the business. Yeah. But I also find it interesting, though, that he kept a very detailed log of everything that he worked on. So when when you ask how many comics did Otto Bender write, he could say, hey, I wrote you know 3000 comics and here they all are. And here's when they were published, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yes. Uh, Otto's records is a, a quite a remarkable um, document. And I have the original. Wow. Are, do you have those that you could put online, or have you ever thought about doing that, or are they just too well, precious for your research? Well, no, I, I, they're going to um, appear in Alter Ego magazine. Uh, we're, we're doing a special uh, 
I think it'll probably be over multiple issues, but we want to publish every page of those records in Alter Ego, where I'm, I'm associate editor, Roy Thomas is editor. Mm-hmm. So those will actually be published um, eventually in Alter Ego. It's, it's set for print, so it's going to happen. Wow, and that's a lot. I mean, that's like 75 pages or more in the original typed up or handwritten notes? 70. Wow, that's, that's so many. Do you, what is the final ta- tally of, of comics that he has oh. remembered that he wrote? I, I I couldn't tell you, but it's in the it's it's in the it's in the, uh, the that kind of a range, you know, like a two to three thousand. Wow. Uh, the one thing I can tell you is that um, in Otto Binder was almost certainly the most prolific comic book writer of the 1940s, because he wrote not just for Fawcett and and for Timely. He wrote a lot. You know, he wrote a lot of Captain America for Timely, which is now Marvel, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. But he also wrote tons of of scripts for a company called Anglo American, a Canadian company, and created a whole line of heroes for them, and 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 did all this work that nobody has really gotten into much because they were Canadian comics. They're so hard to find, mm-hmm. and all many of them are very poor uh, in terms of the artwork. But anyway, he so he was the most prolific writer, I'm quite sure, of the 40s. And, um, you know, it's pretty amazing that he kept those records. However, he did not continue his records when he got back into comics in 1964 mm. and worked worked in comics one way or another till about 1970. Um those are, are they're more documented because you know at that time credits were being published more in mm-hmm. comics, mm-hmm. but he didn't put those on his list. Wow, interesting. You know, let's talk about Otto Bender as a person who's very open-minded. That's the thing that I find very fascinating because if you think about the time period, uh, the twenties through you know the sixties, very troubling times in the United States and around the world. Um, but somehow Bender has this way of working characters and creations that seem to be exploring topics that other creators weren't. And I'm thinking specifically about Adam Link. Well, absolutely. You know, Adam Link, um, it was, uh, uh, superficially a robot that had the uh, mind of a human being and the feelings of a human being. And, and really it was a, it was a, he was pleading for, you know, understanding for this robot. But if you think about it, it's really an analogy or an allegory for race relations in America. Um, that's one example. He did other stories that were, um, had subtexts, uh, about how we should respect people who are different, which was a subliminal thing about, uh, perhaps gay people. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, uh, of course, when he comes to the Legion of Superheroes, then it becomes f- into a full-blown message of equality and egalitarianism. Which is really interesting because when you and I were first exchanging emails, it's like, well, Otto Bender only wrote one issue of the Legion of Superheroes, or at least initially before um, Jerry Siegel took over and started writing. But still in that first issue, you can see that there is representation, inclusion, uh, acceptance for for different aliens, different abilities, different traits. And I find something really inspiring about that. Well, I think that goes to the reason why the Legion of Superheroes is such an enduring, beloved series. Because of that message of equality and inclusion, if you think about it, um, you know, the Justice League had had 
a Wonder Woman, and it sometimes it has had other women in it in, in the fairly early days, but it was mostly just Wonder Woman. And in the original stories in the Justice Society, she was also the secretary. Mm-hmm. Well, in the in the Legion of Superheroes, you don't have one big dominant hero. There, everybody's more or less equal. You might have a chair, you have a chairman, but. Uh, you have Saturn Girl, who is every bit an equal with Lightning Lad and Cosmic Boy in that first story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he uh, he he did uh, uh, name the team. That's pretty important, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 that name includes a hyphen, and that hyphen is still part of the title. No one's ever fiddled with that. It's superheroes with a hyphen, and he named the Legion of Superheroes. And he um, established that um, message of e- e- inclusion with uh, women and, uh, and equality with women and men or boys and girls together, working together, and not, and not um, you know, like uh, teasing each other or flirting with each other, but being very businesslike together, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, they had fun. But it was not about boy, boys and girls um, uh, like Archie or something. It was about serious people working together. Mm-hmm. And that, that is, a, I mean, nowadays, I mean, teamwork and, and inclusion is one of the major themes of our society. Yeah, totally. And I, that's why I think the Legion of Superheroes, as you said, is, is able to endure for so long. But before he got to D.C., he was working over at Fawcett and probably wrote the most comics ever feature Captain Marvel and probably as the force behind, I mean, he didn't create Captain Marvel obviously, but he wrote most of the stories, introduced uh, Captain Marvel Jr., introduced Mary Marvel, introduced, uh, um, what's his name? A tiger, um, talkie, 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 Tawny. Yeah. So he really had a lot of influence in at the time, the most popular superhero in America or maybe even the world. Well, Otto Binder's role on Captain Marvel is just uh, astonishing because if you think about all the people who tried to imitate Superman, all the the companies that tried to do a Superman imitator, you know, Captain Marvel was the only one that started as a Superman imitator but ended up becoming unique unto himself and outsold Superman. And that, that those sales had to do with Otto Bender's talent because he wrote, he is documented as writing over half of all the Marvel family stories, not just Captain Marvel, but as you said, Captain Marvel Jr., Mary Marvel, and everything else. So uh, when someone writes half of, a, of the, one of the best-selling, most beloved series in the history of comics, uh, that's a pretty big achievement. Right. And so... Unfortunately, there was a lawsuit between DC and Fawcett or National Comics at the time and uh, and Fawcett over likeness rights and whether uh, Captain Marvel was lifted from that. And I think we can all agree that the lawsuit was mainly because Captain Marvel was outselling Superman. When this all fell out, what was what was Bender's reaction to this? Was this a big blow to him to be writing, you know, at the top of the mountain, writing uh, Captain Marvel and then suddenly it's all yanked out from underneath him? Well, when when Otto Bender um, could no longer write Captain Marvel because it, it had been sued out of existence, he he said later it just took the sunshine out of his life because there was so much light in Captain Marvel and so much uh, joy. And even though the comics in the early 50s weren't selling as well, the superhero comics weren't selling as well as they had, they were still uh, the same spirit 
and the quality was very good. Uh, uh, Clarence Beck was still drawing them and so on. So it was a major blow for, for Otto. But I feel, as a, his biographer and having written a book about him, that it actually was a blessing because he had been he he went to, when he went to DC and began writing Superman. It it kind of recharged his batteries. It kind of it gave him something different to write about, and suddenly he could pull from other areas of his imagination mm-hmm. that weren't appropriate for Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. So it, it it kind of it kept him fresh. It kept him sharp. Whereas I think he would have creatively had a hard time staying with. Uh, the the Marvel family all through the 50s uh, uh, coming up with new ideas. Was he the highest paid writer in comics? I think so, but it would have to do with his volume. Mm-hmm. He was certainly got the top rate. Uh, what he said was he was a prisoner of the golden rut, that he... He was stuck in a rut of making tons of money, <laughs> and uh, he said, "That's you know." He said, "You know, it's a good rut. It's a good rut to be in. Uh, you don't get a lot of recognition. You don't get a lot of respect, but you make a lot of trips to the bank." Yeah, but but he did have people who knew who he was, even though he may not be credited in some Captain Marvel stuff, or he may not um, um, only been known as you know Bender. But people did track him down. Am I not mistaken? Did people not track him down to his house and say, hey, you're Eno Bender. You're the guy writing Captain Marvel. You're the guy writing Superman. Well, Otto Bender was rediscovered in 1960 by Richard Lupoff, who wrote uh, an article called The Big Red Cheese about his memories of buying Captain Marvel comics in the 40s as a boy. And he published it in a series called All in Color for a Dime in his fanzine Zero. And Zero Number One, where it appeared, came out in 1960. And he took a copy of it up to Space World, where Otto was the editor and owner, and left it with the receptionist for Otto to see. And he received a long letter from Otto, and they got together. And uh, as it turned out, Otto Binder did get involved in the early days of comic fandom, helping Richard Lupoff on Zero, helping Jerry Bales on Alter Ego, and helping Roy Thomas on Alter Ego when Roy took it over from Jerry. Uh, so uh, Otto went to early con- the earliest conventions. So he was a big supporter of it, but he said at the time, I never dreamed that there, were comic- there would be comic book fans, science fiction fans, yes, but comic book fans? It took him totally by surprise. It's interesting that you said science fiction fans, because that's the other thing that I find really fascinating about Bender and maybe one of the things that helped um, push him more towards this idea of the Legion of Superheroes is that he put science into his fiction. Um, he he was more interested in uh, trying to put in scientific fact to help people learn than maybe than maybe just making it up and, and fooling the the, the reader. Well, Otto Binder as a writer was not only in science fiction, but he was a science fact writer. He made, in the late 50s and early 60s, he made a lot of his money writing science fact golden books that children read. There was millions and millions of copies were printed of these things, like Our Neighbor the Moon. And Our Neighbor the Moon must have sold uh, three or four million copies of Baby Boomers. I probably read an old copy of that. Yeah, I bet you did because it's just you couldn't escape it, and yeah. you know this is the space, during the era of the space race, uh, and but his most salient characteristics 
as a writer you would find would be in addition to these themes of inclusion and the importance of female characters like Supergirl and Mary Marvel. Of course, you know he co-created Supergirl. Um, was that he would include science uh, gimmicks in his stories and science fiction in his stories, and uh, that's you. You see that in everything he wrote. He had a lot of stories of time travel, which is a science fiction idea of uh, um, future worlds of what the future will be like, um, and brought in other science fiction elements in, into his plots and stories. I, it's just it's neat because. When you think about comic books, you don't think about those kinds of things. I mean, certainly you see some other writers trying to do that when we're talking about uh, how does the Flash use his powers, those kinds of things. Where does it come from? With Captain Marvel, it's all about magic. But being right. able to insert science into that, I think, is is a big plus. And as you said, once he left comics, he went to go start space magazines. Oh, that's right. And he and and then he took it a step further. He would go on radio shows to try to publicize Space World, and um, people would call in and ask him about UFOs and what he thought about those. And then at first he said, "Well, I, I until I see one, till I say hello to an alien, um, I, I'm going to be skeptical. I'm not going to believe it." But he gradually it was worn down by the mountains of, of evidence in the '60s, and ended up becoming kind of a granddaddy of the UFO movement because mm -hmm. his belief system was if i'm not mistaken he was more into we had been uh, the planet had been seeded by alien life is that the, is that the direction that he was going on well later he wrote one of the first books about what you know, call ancient astronauts uh aliens that came to earth and seeded the human race yes and because their really evolution doesn't explain some things a lot of people feel and uh, but but initially it was uh, he was just interested in UFOs. He got the idea of the ancient astronauts from uh, a science writer and scientist named Max Flint, who sent it into him in an essay called "Tiptoeing Past Darwin" uh, when he was at Space World, and that's where he started thinking about the ancient astronauts. But the UFO interest came up sort of independently of that, and he ended up writing several books. Uh, about UFOs. I find it interesting that initially he would be hesitant about it since a lot of his stuff is about robots and outer space and, you know, teenagers from the future. <laughs> right. Well, you know, um, there were science fiction writers in the twenties and thirties that never believed there would never be space travel. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, you know, you could still have fiction even if you didn't believe it was happening. I think with Otto, he was, he had a. Uh, he wanted to believe that there were UFOs. It made sense, you know, uh, that there had to be some other life out there in the universe. But he was just not going to put himself into the same group with a lot of people that, you know, that on the fringes might seem a little out there. Mm -hmm. uh, he wanted. He would. He was selling himself as a serious science writer. So he had to be careful of his uh, reputation. But behind the scenes, he was getting more and more intrigued as the 60s went on. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned that people kept calling him because he would be invited on these uh, radio circuits or television circuits to talk about science. Was he the right. was he the Neil deGrasse Tyson of his day? Well, not as much as Arthur C. Clarke became later when 2001 came out and then we had the moonwalk. Then you had uh, Arthur C. Clarke and Robert E. Heinlein. Uh, Binder was more in the early 60s during the initial space race, and he was more often on local 
television programs in the New York area. Uh, okay. All right. Let's go back to his transition from Fawcett to DC. Was that a, a difficult time for him? Because he's moving to somebody that basically sued him out of a job. Well, moving from Fawcett to DC had its awkward moments for Bender. There's no question about it. Um, he was, uh, he, he said he felt quite bitter about uh, what National had done to get uh, getting rid of uh, Captain Marvel as their competitor. But at the same time, um, his one of his closest friends, well, two of his closest friends were editors there and offering him work. And uh, you know, he was a businessman. He was able to um, you know put it aside. And, uh, but later when fandom came around in the sixties and he talked about his bitter feelings, um, his editors at DC said, don't talk about that stuff anymore. You're working with us now. You shouldn't be talking about those Mm -hmm. things. But initially there was, there was no problems from the higher ups when they found out that their, you know, that the Captain Marvel writer was now writing for them. Nobody was like, Hey, how dare we do this? No, not at all. And in fact, they were thrilled to have him because he had been so successful. Now, he had actually, um, Otto Binder wrote many stories for DC in the late 40s, but only for backup strips, mm-hmm. uh, like Robot Man and things like that. And he was perfectly happy to do that. But, he, they, of course, he didn't work on Superman. And uh, so the editors more or less kept it kind of under wraps. I don't think the management really realized. But when he came to DC in 1953 and began writing, you know, for the science fiction comics and all, and then later for Superman, I think the management was just happy to have someone who was as skilled as he was. Mm-hmm. His, um, he didn't have a, a, a perfect life. I mean, we've been talking about all these accomplishments and all these accolades that people have, have thrown at him over the years, but he didn't have a, 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 a super happy life, especially uh, in in the latter half. Well, you know, Otto Binder was uh, many years of great success as a writer, but in the latter part of his life, uh, tragedy kind of overcame his life. Um, uh, for one thing, um, uh, and even before that, I should add that you know he became a heavy drinker, hmm. and in the and in the late fifties and early sixties, with the pressure of Space World and getting along with Mort Weisinger, who who ended up becoming quite difficult to get along with, um, he developed a drinking problem. And that, of course, didn't didn't help anything. But then, uh, you know, uh, later in the 60s, you know, he had one daughter, Mary, named after Mary Marvel. And uh, she was a, a beautiful girl. And uh, uh, she was killed by a driver. Mm. A, a car. She was hit by a car and instantly killed when she was uh, 15. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in, in, in 1967. And this, you can, and when your only child is killed, you know, this is, this would shatter anybody. And it shattered him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he never could recover from that because, you know, he, it, you know, you look forward in life to be optimistic. You know, one of the things that helps people maintain their optimism as they get older is they look at their children and they have great hopes for their children. Well, that, that dream was over for him. And, uh, uh, and of course his drinking increased. So from 1967 until his passing in 1974, um, he was just struggling to make a living and writing, the joy of writing kind of went away. He, he lost his zest for writing mm-hmm. at that point. Do you think if uh, the alcoholism and uh, depression had not taken him, 
Do you think he would look back and say, you know, especially at fandom today, because as you said, fandom was just getting started. Do you think he'd look back at the legacy of characters that he wrote and created and see kind of the happiness and joy that it's brought to people? Oh, I, I think he did. Even in his darkest hour, he knew that because, you know, he could take all, he could like make a figurative quilt out of all the fan letters he got and wrap himself in it. You know, he, people loved him and they expressed their love to him in a lot of letters, visits, interviews. Uh, so he knew how beloved uh, his characters were. Um, you know, he was very proud of what he had done and, uh, um, and people let him know that. So I think that is something to keep in mind is that he did not feel forgotten or neglected mm-hmm. at all. Uh, he, if he removed himself from the scene, it was because he just couldn't handle um, working and living in close to New York City. So he moved into upstate New York with his wife to a little house out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you think is his greatest legacy? Is it pulp? Is it... Uh, comic books? Is it is it Captain Marvel? Is it his his uh, space magazine? Is it his book writing? What what is his his biggest legacy? Do you think? Well, I think that um, his work and the Superman mythos would be uh, have to be considered Otto Bender's greatest legacy. Um, establishing um, so many things in the late fifties that we still have today, uh, such as uh, co uh, uh, creating Supergirl. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Superboy's dog Crypto, uh, the uh, inventing Lana Lang, uh, Lois Lane's sister, uh, you know the the little the bottle city of Candor, the little Kryptonian city that Superman had in a bottle and could never enlarge. He probably did in some universe somewhere now, but <laughs> back then he couldn't. And and in general, um, bringing humanity to and to the Superman uh, family of comic books that they had never had before. I think is his most enduring um, legacy because of the continued popularity of these characters. Um, and, and also, you know, obviously Captain Marvel would never be around today. He would have been a forgotten hero if Otto Bender had not been uh, working on him. The magic would not have been as strong and the character wouldn't have sustained as long as it did. And I don't think the interest would be sufficient to have him be a, you know, he's a pretty strong character at DC these days. There's supposed mm-hmm. to be a Captain Marvel movie coming along eventually here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's not a top, top character, but I think that legacy is also very important. Your book, Otto Bender, The Life and Work of a Comic Book and Science Fiction Fiction Visionary, is available now in a new edition that people can buy. Bill, what else are you working on? Well, um, I uh, finished a biography of Harvey Kurtzman, which won the Eisner Award for the best uh, comics-related book of 2015. And I'm very proud of it. It's called Harvey Kurtzman, The Man Who Created Mad. And uh, right now I'm working on um, an extended version of my memoir called Sense of Wonder, A Life in Comic Fandom, where I wrote about how comics saved my life as a kid and gave me all kinds of opportunity to become a writer and to learn to draw and all kinds of things. And now, late in life, writing about comics has given me a writing career. And so uh, really, fandom is the bookend of, of the beginning of my life and, and the latter part of my life now. And I uh, hope it goes on for quite a while still, but that the, it's, the, it's the rest of the story that my original book, which came out in 1998, didn't have. That's what I'm working on. Sense of Wonder, a life in comic fandom. 
Adventure Comics number 267, Prisoner of the Superheroes. Published December 1959. Written by Jerry Siegel with art by George Papp. The Legion returns to investigate strange historical claims. Will Superboy actually become a villain? Adventure Comics 267 is a weird one, Matthew, because... Again, teenagers are mean for the wrong reasons. This is this is one of those yes. those stories of everyone trusts technology, but technology shouldn't be trusted. Yeah. And unlike 247, which kind of had a, a, a nice hook to it and an expectation, it felt like from the first pages that something else was going on, even when they were taunting him. Mm-hmm. This feels from the first page cruel, flat out cruel to Superboy. The Legion is mean to him. The city of Townsville, I mean, the city of Smallville turns on him. Ma and Pa Kent are like, we wish you were never adopted. <laughs> we wish you'd never came to our little town, Superboy. I Get out of here. I send you back to the orphanage, but you're from space, so shut up, boy. Well, what's even worse is that when the final reveal happens, you know, Saturn Girl is like, yeah, I made everybody hate you. Yeah. I, I, used, I used my mental mojo to make the town and your parents hate you. Even his dog. She mind controlled his dog, dude. That is cold. And the worst part is it's all because of a mistake. And mm-hmm. I think that this is something that even today is is kind of a um, uh, a lesson where we need to question what is presented before us. Just because mm-hmm. it shows Superman destroying a, a ship or tearing up a an airstrip or shoving a factory down into a giant crevasse doesn't mean that Superman has gone crazy and we need to lock him in a kryptonite-lined prison for the rest of his life. Right. And with the reveal that, oh, it's a computer glitch, I think that's even more relevant today than maybe it was 50 years ago or yeah. longer than that, 60 years ago. 60, yeah. This is from 1959. December of 59 is, I believe, the uh, cover date, which mm-hmm. means it may have been out in late fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, things are weird in 59. I believe it's three to four months ahead of time at that right, point. Right, because you have something called a shelf life where right. if the cover date says December of 59, that's when it comes off the shelves. So it could be mm-hmm. up for three months ahead of that time so that it has yeah. some time to, to buy it. But to be honest, I can't imagine that Adventure Comics would be on the shelf for that long anyway, because I just imagine kids snatching these up and running away with them very quickly. Well, and Superman and Superboy stories sold very well. And of course it's been in real time. It would have been 18 months since we last saw the Legion. Mm -hmm. And apparently the response to that issue was pretty impressive. Yeah, it was, it was a huge thing for the Legion in this one shot to suddenly catch everyone's attention like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this issue really kind of, in some ways, if you look at just the way it's plotted, it does try and duplicate the tricks of 247. Mm -hmm. Kids show up from the future, something weird is going on, but it kind of turns it around at the end. It does something different with that revelation, but then, of course, it creates an entire planet of superhumans called Superboy Planet. Okay, so... (laughs) Man, I have a lot of questions about, about Superboy Super City, Planet. about Superboy Planet, Superboy City. Superboy City. That's my favorite. First of all, my, my first question is, mm-hmm. after this issue, has Superboy Planet ever been brought up again? Or did the Legion of Superheroes feel so bad that they made such a giant goof that they just destroyed the planet 
and never brought it up again. <laughs> That's actually funny. Uh, Superboy Planet is in the modern day. It's important to know that they came back from the 30th century and mm-hmm. created Superboy Planet in the 20th century. Right. I am I am not aware of any other appearances of Superboy Planet, which makes me wonder if somehow it didn't become something like maybe Tacron Galtos or something else. But again, that would all be speculation. In story, it just went away. And all of the superhumans that lived there probably moved to, I don't know, Bat Batman planet, where that's, you have to talk like this. That's the other weird thing is that there are so many superheroes flying mm-hmm. around in space with their little rocket packs without mm-hmm. any protection, uh, breathing protection. Of course, you got to remember, well, this is before, you know, this is before we actually had a regular space program where we realized, oh, hey, people need to breathe out there in the cold dark vacuum of space. Well, remember, uh, the Legionnaires. And again, this is something that retroactively. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Right. The Legionnaires have their invisible trans suits that allow them to travel unaided in space. Yeah. But these 10 million people streaming this, uh, convoy across the uh, galaxy are not yes. Legion people. Are, are you saying that, are you just saying that by, the, the fact that the technology exists, <laughs> that's what I was wondering, is just because the fact that the technology exists, mm-hmm. does that mean that other people also have access to this same technology? For example, if I were alive in the 30th century, would mm-hmm. I have access to a flight ring? Could I go down to my local uh, Piggly Wiggly, Andy. pick up yeah. a, a, a flight ring and go to town? I don't know, but I do know that at the end of the story, the second to last panel of the story, we see Jonathan and Martha Kent brought to Superboy Planet wearing full right. space suits and bubbles, which implies that they understand that you got to have a space suit and bubble. But maybe if you're a superhuman, the presumption is that you don't. If mm. all of these superhumans are maybe Kryptonian or quasi-Kryptonian, mm-hmm. because remember, the writer of this story may have had some input into what a Kryptonian is and isn't. Um, I'm thinking, I'm wondering if maybe it's just the expectation that if you're super, you can fly in space unaided and Mm -hmm. don't ask too many questions, kid. (laughs) I don't know. I wanted to bring this up. Mm -hmm. The first issue appearance of Legion of Superheroes was written by Otto Bender. So he gets full credit for that. But the second issue, the follow-up story where the Legion appears and many of their subsequent stories after that are all Mm -hmm. written by Superman creator, Jerry Siegel. Or co-creator mm-hmm. Jerry Siegel. Right. Do you find, I mean, we only have one Bender story to go from, but mm-hmm. do you find a weird dynamic shift when Siegel takes over or not? Yes and no. I've always felt that when it comes to a Siegel story about Superman, he has a clear expectation uh, that can be stated, I think, as my guy is the best guy. Um, and you know, it's professional work done work for hire, but it does kind of feel like this is my baby. Mm-hmm. This is the character that I created. And this is the one that is going to come out on top and he's the best and he'll always be the best. And I feel like there is a tonal shift in this issue. And part of it, we, you know, we talked about in that the Legion in 247 felt mischievous, but mostly kind of poke poke. This Legion feels flat out, you know, confrontational and maybe even a little bit rude. I mean, if you look at the snarl on Kyle's oh, yeah. face. Yeah, like we and, don't need out of my way, Superboy. Uh, I'll handle this. You. We don't mm-hmm. need your stinking. I want to correct myself. Otto Bender did write 
uh, some more Legion adventures in, mm-hmm. in the future. But this is really kind of a weird shift uh, for me because the Legionnaires are so mean. Now, granted, they're coming at it from the standpoint of Superboy is evil and five years from now he's going to do something so horrific that um, it will be devastating. So right. we're going to be mean to him and trick him into outer space where we can lock him up. I don't know. It just feels like a very different story with if they were so popular, this feels like if this feels like Superman one and Superman two, where it was supposed to be one film and it was supposed to be one great giant epic story. But because of studio involvement and people dragging their feet, uh, we kicked the director off the first movie and we did a bunch of reshoots and and edited highly the second movie to where it's not as good as the first. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what this one feels like. 247 ended with Superman going, hey, guys, your cool super future team is awesome. And they're going, yeah, and you're pretty awesome, too. And everybody pats each other on the back. This ends with Superboy proving them wrong and them all saying, yay, three cheers for Superboy. He's the best. So part of it is the fact that they are set up as so clearly, if not villainous, confrontational at the beginning. Yeah. this is a weird one. This, I mean, this is one of several real cases of early installment weirdness among the Legionnaires. Well, and I was going to say, maybe it's because they're just trying to find the even keel, yeah. right? They're trying to find what, what works best. Yeah. And that, that is definitely part of it. I mean, any, if you look at the second appearance or the second issue or the second episode of anything, you'll probably find five or 10 different things that get, Mm-hmm. rejected or changed or you know thrown aside this does make an important change of making saturn girl a blonde mm-hmm. where she was more strawberry blonde in that first appearance it does away with uh causes bubble helmet which makes mm-hmm. me sad mm-hmm. and it does put lightning lad in his traditional silver age suit with the brown pants well i was going to say that because the we do get a more traditional costume change here where their names are no longer stitched across the front of their their jackets saturn girl moves mm-hmm. to the more red uh, dress that we were familiar with of the silver age as opposed mm-hmm. to the one that she was wearing in her first appearance uh mm-hmm. and yes uh um lightning lad does get the the lightning bolt thing that's going to be really important uh, going forward for these characters. So, and this, this is the issue where he, he gets the name change from lightning boy to lightning mm-hmm. lad, mm-hmm. which is much more mellifluous anyway. Uh, lightning lad sings lightning boy just feels kind of, you know, clunky and awkward. So what is it about alliteration that makes things like lightning lad and lightning lass, uh, mm-hmm. work better than, uh, a lightning boy. Of course, we're talking Superman. So the mm-hmm. double L's is a, is a big deal with Lana Lang, mm-hmm. Lex Luthor, Lois Lane, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Laurie Lamaris. Yeah. Yeah. I think alliteration is, well, for one thing, it's extremely, uh, charismatic in terms of memory. Lightning lad feels like it makes sense. Lightning lad feels graceful lightning boy does not or lightning girl or lightning person all feel like you're getting out of it but when you really feel the flow of a free form floating (laughs) field of (laughs) fish you know you, you get into that alliteration and it it does it's it's a very 
useful trick. I mean, if you read a lot of poetry, if you read a lot of slam poetry or even hip hop, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you get alliteration because alliteration kind of builds you that, yeah, you know, the Lin, Lin-Manuel Miranda thing that it's, it's a really fun tool to work with. And it's more fun to say the lightning lad, lightning lad lives in the land. Whereas lightning boy bites and blows. <laughs> <laughs> One other thing that I think we should point out about Jerry Siegel's ego and how he (laughs) wants to inject himself into comics is in order for Superboy to get out of his kryptonite-lined jail, there has to be a giant earthquake on Superboy planet, turning Mm -hmm. all of the kryptonite into blue Siegelian. 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 S-I-G-E-L-L-I-A-N. Siegel. Mm -hmm. S-I-G-E-L. As deadly to the Legion as Kryptonite is to Superboy. Is that is that Siegel injecting himself? Because we see Siegel oh, yeah. as a as a character or as a as a reference of uh, Superboy's grandfather, I believe, mm-hmm. in in the uh, canonical story of, of Superman. But is this do you think this is Jerry Siegel just saying, Hey, I'm gonna put my name in here and see how many people <laughs> catch it? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what it is. And that's kind of the charm of a seagull story is you can find those little, you know, twists and tucks. And that's part of the reason why Superman caught on in the first place back in the golden age. So, um, I, I like that, but at the same time, part of me is just like, is it too much? No, no, it's not. But I can see why someone might think it is. Yeah. Ego, ego is definitely the right word for it, but it's, it's a clever, fun, kind of approachable ego that I enjoy. This issue also brings us the first work of a very important Legion and Superman creator as well on the cover. Even though the interiors, I believe, are George Papp, mm-hmm. the cover is the first Legion work of Kurt Swan. Oh, really? I did not know that. Now, many yeah. people who have listened to our Major Spoilers podcast and others know that uh, Kurt Swan is one of Matthew's favorites. When it comes oh, yeah. to a classic Superman look. And I did not know that this was his first first cover work. This is his first Legion cover. That's still really cool. Yeah. Kurt actually, I believe, dates back to the late 1940s. But he is someone who really defines Superman for me in the 60s and 70s. And a lot of Silver Age Legion tales are also either inked by or partially drawn by Swan. I want to say that the Stalag of Space which we hope to get to. So, you know, if, you, if you're wanting to hear that story, <laughs> you know what you can do, Faithful Spoiler. That's but right. The Stalag of Space is a Kurt, Kurt Swan joint. Cool. And it's beautiful. It is beautiful. And I noticed that he gives everyone rosy cheeks on the cover. Or is that he the does. colorist uh, Steve K doing that? Uh, it's a little of both. A little of both. You know, it's the 50s. Things are different in the 50s. In 1959, people needed the rosy cheeks. And also... Cover reproduction isn't exactly the science in 1959 that it will become in the year 2017. That's true. So bottom line for Adventure Comics 267, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. Technology will falter. And somewhere (laughs) out there orbiting a star near you is Superboy Planet. Superboy Planet. Well, Matthew, that wraps up our first installment of the Legion Clubhouse. How'd it go with, with you? Mm, I, I had a good time. I like this uh, early Legion stuff. I feel like these two stories mm-hmm. 
may not be the meatiest of the the Legion stuff that we're going to get into, mm-hmm. but they're wonderful in scene setting. They're wonderful in seeing this is where they're going and this is where all of these things are going to sprout from. I mean, 247 has several panels where you see those other shadowy Legionnaires. Mm-hmm. And my first thought now, even 60 years later, is, gosh, I want to know who all those guys are. And we will find I, out in future episodes, I'm sure. I know, but I'll tell you next time around. So here's what here's my <laughs> here's my thought. We're in mm-hmm. 1958, 1959 mm-hmm. for these stories. And I think that this may have been the most perfect time for the Legion to appear because mm-hmm. baby boomers are coming of age and yes. they're looking for ways to connect with superheroes. Right. I mean, uh, we're talking about 18 year olds, 17, 18 year olds uh, coming of age. It's their younger brothers and sisters, the five and six year olds uh, mm-hmm. that are that are um, bu- still buying these things. Yep. Superman was still probably their parents hero. So they're probably reading Superboy comics more than anything. Cowboy comics, there's still a lot of them at the time, but I mean, the space yeah. age has come about. We're hearing yeah. all the things about trying to put a man on the moon. Not quite, not quite yet, but we're getting close to the point where we're putting a man on the moon before the end of a decade. And so space is this really cool thing. And when you look at it, the Legion incorporates all of these, plus mm-hmm. the fact that the future is going to be a better place for everyone once mm-hmm. we get along. It really sets up this really cool notion that the future is going to be okay and don't worry about ducking cover and that we're all going to die in yeah. a horrible post-nuclear age. Yeah. Everyone will have something contribute, something to contribute in the future. And I think that's really, you can start to see that here in these stories where these three kids are like, Superman, we know you're a legend, but also we want to know you're a good guy. Mm-hmm. We want you to be someone that we can hang out with and and it kind of, I think, does show that transition into the 60s movements, mm-hmm. into into the that maybe not quite into the hippies, but definitely into a let's all get along. Let's take a moment, expand your consciousness. So do you think then that the that the Legion of Superheroes is what led to the hippie movement? I think that it's definitely from those same social aspects. I think the oh, things that that's why in future, that in future installments, we're going to see munchy man and, uh, <laughs> patchouli lad, <laughs> the patchouli, yeah. patchouli pal. Yeah. yeah. And don't forget Birkenstock kid, <laughs> uh, because he's one of my favorite members of the Legion of substitute heroes, auxiliary backup reserve. The guys who, <laughs> who aren't ready to be ready to be ready, but might be ready to be ready to be ready to ready. If you have a situation that's just small enough for them to handle. That wraps it up for this installment of the Legion Clubhouse. Thank you so much for joining us on our first uh, episode. We want to continue this show and we can do it with your support. If you enjoyed this discussion, if you enjoyed our interviews, you want to hear more and you want to hear this content continue far into the future. Maybe we can finish by the time the Legion first appeared. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Head over to patreon.com slash major spoilers and sign up today. We're looking for 150 new subscribers to keep this show going. We're getting closer. Make it happen. You can do it. So until next time, I'm mince pie eater lad. And I'm case of scotch kid. Take care. The Legion Clubhouse is a production of major spoilers entertainment LLC and is produced by Steven Schleicher. 
Your hosts were Matthew Peterson and Steven Schleicher. You can follow Matthew at Mighty King Cobra and Steven at Major Spoilers. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Legion Clubhouse. If you have questions or comments, send them to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. I'm Jason Inman. Until next time, eat it, Grandpa. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.